Let me invite you to turn again in your copy of God's Word, this time to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew. Uh, Our text can be found on page 821 of the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. We're reading the final uh, handful of verses in chapter 15. Most of you were here a couple weeks ago uh, when uh, we looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, That uh, miracle of multiplying the bread and the loaves to feed a a huge crowd with more left over. You may be wondering why in the world is the pastor going to preach on the same thing again? (laughs) Our text before us has all the same elements, a large hungry crowd, uh, a little bit of bread and fish, but a miracle of multiplication with baskets full left over. I'm going to assume that most of you agree with me that they're two different stories for a lot of reasons, but one, because Jesus tells us there's two different ones. We'll see that next week. But when I read this, I want you to try to notice the differences between the two accounts. Because the message this morning is both in the similarities between the two accounts and in the differences. There's where we find uh, our meaning about what Jesus uh, is doing in this second miracle of multiplication. Follow along with me. Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowds to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Again, I ask you to pray with me. Lord, we are dependent upon you in all things in this service. And we are dependent upon you to speak in this very moment. Lord, without the blessing of your spirit, my words are nothing. And without your spirit opening our hearts to hear and believe, we receive this morning nothing. Would you bless us then with the quiet and yet powerful and effective work of your spirit that you, God, would speak to the living hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of you know the story of Andrew Jackson and when he became president and the party that he threw. Andrew Jackson was elected president in the uh, early part of the 1800s, and before him had gone lots of 
prestigious and upper class and upper crust men who had taken on the office of the presidency. But Andrew Jackson was, uh, as he claimed, a man of the people. And he wanted to show that he was a man of the people. So after he was inaugurated, he flung open the doors of the White House and invited anybody who wanted to come in. Thousands upon thousands of people trampled and partied all over the White House. There's stories that they broke thousands of dollars worth of of China. Uh, Apparently, they could only get the people out when they put bowls of wine out in the grass. (laughs) So the people had a reason to leave the party in the White House. But instead of being a disaster, this is just what the new president wanted. What was the point of his presidency? It was the point of that party. He's a president for everyone. That was at least the message that he preached. A party for everyone showed that he was a president for everyone. Not only the upper crust and the rich of society, but the dregs, as it were, to come in to the White House for this great feast. Jesus presents this second feeding, not because he is a president for everyone, but because he is showing he is a savior for everyone. The first feeding took place amongst a Jewish crowd and a Jewish population. That is what to be expected from the Jewish Messiah. But a second feeding, a second miracle is more like that inauguration at Andrew Jackson's White House, a party that all are invited to and no one is turned away. Jesus is telling us in these miracles, he's pointing us to what's called later in Scripture, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? They are, the, the feeding is a taste of what God will do when he returns for his people and lays a banquet. And that banquet is not merely for the Jewish people and the Hebrew nation. No, that marriage supper of the Lamb is open to everyone who believes. That's the message of the gospel. That is the, the, the picture of the gospel in this feeding. The marriage supper of the Lamb is open to all who believe. Now, how do we know it's open? Jesus issues invitations. As he's gone about his ministry, they're a little stronger than an invitation, right? When he calls the people to repent and believe, calling someone to repent is more than inviting them to repent, right? He's commanding us to repent of our sin. And he is, but he is welcoming through repentance and faith all who believe to come into his kingdom and to sit at his table. He's been telling us this in his words, and now he shows us this truth in his actions. I want you to see the the steps of this invitation to the supper, right? We're going to see it begins. It is issued from the heart of Christ. It goes through the hands of the disciples and ends up as a hope. For the nations. I'll repeat those again as we go. But our first point is that the invitation begins from the heart of Christ. If you're taking notes, that's just verse 32. From the heart of Christ. The key idea in both of these feedings is that of compassion. It's hungry, needing people, hungry, excuse me, needy people needing food, and others who have it having compassion on them. But what's key in this account is not only who has compassion, who is compassionate, but also who does not have compassion. That's actually where I want to start. 
Because I want you to see the difference in these two accounts begins with the disciples lacking compassion. You remember what happened at the beginning of the feeding uh, in chapter 14 with the 5,000. The disciples came to Jesus and they brought him the problem of hungry people. And those people were their people. They were on, at that point, sort of the, the Jewish side, the region of Galilee. So it's their people. And they see their people hungry, and they want Jesus to solve the problem. They'd been there, it seems like, the afternoon, right? Jesus tells us in this feeding of the 4,000, we learn he's gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the Decapolis is what's called, and in that region, it's mostly Gentiles. And they've been there not for a few hours, but a few days. And those people are hungry. They're in danger of fainting. And who does not bring this problem to Jesus? Those very same disciples. They're amongst their own crowd and their own people. And apparently they're compassionate there because they're a little bit hungry. But they're in a different crowd. They're with a different group of people who are a lot hungrier. Crickets, as the kids say, right? Silence. We don't hear anything. Actually, the disciples may have said something. Jesus says in the second part of his answer, I'm unwilling to send them away hungry. Is he responding to possibly their solution again, which is just send them away to go get some food? Maybe. Uh, One commentator asked, is Jesus indirectly reproving the disciples for their lack of sympathy for the needs of the Gentile world? I think he is. Is he indirectly reproving the disciples, rebuking them for their lack of sympathy for the needs of the Gentile world? Their compassion and their sympathy is reserved for a certain group or a certain crowd of people. The disciples seem in this account to be lacking compassion. But you know who's not lacking compassion? Of course, Jesus. Jesus is full of compassion. We read in verse 32. You know that experience when you're walking maybe downtown Asheville or an area with a lot of restaurants or you're invited to somebody's house and you come in and you smell delicious food, right? And you think, man, where is that coming from? You're walking down the street and you think, I got to go to that restaurant. Whatever that smell is, I need to find where it's coming from and I got to go there and eat that. But what we see in Matthew's gospel is all this, this wonderful, gracious, powerful healings and, uh, and, uh, and resurrections and casting out of demons, all of this wonderful stuff, all of this beautiful smell. And it causes us to wonder, where is that coming from? And the answer is it's emanating from the heart of Christ. These aren't merely things that Jesus does. They are that. But what he does begins with his heart. And Jesus says, as he begins his his, his sentence in verse 32, I have compassion. It's as if he's saying, I gave y'all days to have some compassion on these people. <laughs> I haven't heard it yet. So just to be clear, I have compassion on the crowd. Compassion is sort of a unique description of something that we experience because it's something that we feel, right? Often, even in the Bible, we read someone feels compassion, right? It, it means to have pity on something. It's to have mercy on someone. Literally, it means to be moved in the inward parts. And the inward parts is like your guts, okay? It sounds kind of gross, right? 
I mean, we're, we're in a culture where we associate feelings with our heart. I don't think there's a biological reason for that. I don't know, maybe doctors can correct me. But in this culture, to say something comes from within us, how we feel, like it comes from our guts. And I mean, again, it's kind of gross, but that's sort of where you feel stuff, right? <laughs> right? Like, you know, you're, uh, you sort of, you, you feel almost a, a cringe or a pain for someone else. Jesus is almost saying he has a pit in his stomach for the needy people around him. The seat of his emotions. This isn't a rational thing. It's a, a math calculation. Those people need food because they haven't eaten. No, it's a, it's a move of compassion from, who, from, from whom, who he is. It arises from within. When you pause for a moment, it's incredible that God, because Jesus is God, would be moved by something outside of himself. It's actually something we believe about God that he doesn't change. He doesn't, and he, so he's not sort of, he's not drawn to the saddest thing around him, right? I mean, God is not, God is a simple being. He's not complex that he has different parts of him arguing with one another, right? I mean, we maybe have compassion and we have sort of that, that image of sort of a, an angel and a demon on our shoulders telling us what to do, sort of arguing the two sides of us, the head versus the heart. God doesn't have that, right? God is not enacted upon by something else that he might change. He is changeless. He is simple in the fullest sense of the term. And yet, Scripture testifies that his heart goes out to the poor and the sick and the needy. That he has so identified himself as moved by the plight of humanity. What moves him? That word compassion has been used twice already. It's only used three times in Matthew. Number one, in chapter nine, he is moved by sheep without a shepherd. Remember this? Sheep without a shepherd. It's talking about the Jewish people who don't have the promised Messiah. Chapter 14, right before the feeding of the 5,000, we read he had compassion. That's before he heals, right? So he's, he has compassion on the sick, and here he has compassion on the needy. That same word is used a couple of times in Luke's gospel. Same type of people that Jesus has compassion on. Poor, needy, vulnerable, lowly, helpless. You all know what compassion is because you feel it for people. You also know that sometimes you don't feel it for people. <laughs> or sometimes it runs out. We know that we as humans are limited in our capacity to feel compassion. But Jesus is not. He is not limited. His heart does not grow cold. There's not a bottom to this, this well of compassion as there is for us. That means that you, when you are suffering something, when you're enduring something, and you have friends or fellow church members or family members have compassion on you for a while, and then you get the sense it's running out, right? Like, I think they're done with me. I'm still crying because it's still hard, but they don't want to hear it anymore. I mean, I know you felt that. But when compassion runs out from everyone around you, Jesus tells us he has compassion, and it does not run dry, and it does not run out. That when no one else does, he has compassion on your plight, on your need, on your pain. And what a reminder to us as we want to minister to those around us, as we want to show 
the gospel to those around us, as we want to, to demonstrate the compassion that God has on our children, right, on our church family, on our neighbors, on our coworkers, that we all know that our compassion runs dry. We're done with them. We're fed up with them. Maybe we want to be compassionate, but it's just, it's been so much. You've heard of this sort of sympathy fatigue, right? There's only so far we can go. I think there's an encouragement here to look to your Savior whose compassion never runs dry for us. To pray that as we, as we dwell in that, as we remember that, as we recall that, he will make us, by the power of his Spirit, a more compassionate people. That it won't take us three days amongst the hungry people to think maybe we should try to get them some food. That Jesus and his compassion transforms us. You see, a God who has compassion is the God the Old Testament describes as the one who sees us, as the one who hears our cries. End of Exodus chapter 2. You'll remember the Hebrews are in Egypt and they're crying out to God because of the rough treatment they have at the hands of the Pharaoh who doesn't know them. And it says that God sees and he hears and he remembers. Remembers is the covenant code word that means God's about to do something. God's about to act. He's about to send a savior. He's about to send a deliverer. He's about to send a king. He's about to send an army. And when Jesus says he has compassion, that's our New Testament code word. He's about to do something. He's about to heal. He's about to feed. He's about to raise from the dead. What characterizes our God is that he sees the depths of our plight. And he remembers and has compassion. And the deepest plight that you have is not that you're hungry, like these people were. It's not that you're sick. It's not that you're mourning or grieving or alone. These things are all hard. These things are all what our Savior has compassion on. But the depth of our plight is our sin and rebellion against God. The depth of our plight is that we have alienated ourselves from God. And if anyone should not have compassion on us, it is the very God against whom we have spat in rebellion and defiance. And yet it is that same God who looks upon a poor and needy people who are getting what we deserve and he sends us a savior and he sends us a deliverer and he sends us a a redeemer, not just to feed us a little bit, not just to heal our diseases, but to die for us, to give his own life for us, to raise us again from the dead. All of those gospel promises are rooted in the heart of Christ, the one who is full of compassion, the one who redeems and heals all that afflicts us. That's where this invitation begins, comes from the heart of Christ. How does it come to us? How does it come to humanity? Our second heading is it comes through the hands of his disciples. Something so incredible is mediated. It is brought to us in the hands of these disciples, which is fascinating. Look at the question uh, at verse 33. The disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Does that not just make your brain explode reading that? (laughs) Like y'all were there, right? You were on the other side of the lake with him, right? Why do they ask this? I'll be honest with you. I don't entirely know. 
I have some good theories that I'll share with you in a second, but I don't entirely know. Matthew doesn't tell us. And if we were there with him, we'd probably ask the same thing, right? Let me give you some possible answers why they ask him this question. Number one is because they doubt his purpose. They doubt God's purpose. Okay, it makes sense for Jewish people to welcome a Jewish Messiah and feed a Jewish crowd. That makes sense, okay? Then we meet a, a Canaanite woman, an enemy of God's people, and she's needy. She needs the, the, the demon sent out of her daughter, and she comes to Jesus. And what does Jesus give her, according to her words? Some crumbs. All right, your Jewish disciple, that makes sense. We get the feast. They get the crumbs. Then he starts to heal some people, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. He's, and they're thinking, well, this is a little bit more. <laughs> okay, Jesus, these things make sense. But now you're telling us that you are going to welcome the Gentiles to the messianic end of age feast? Man, that's a bridge too far. I wonder if they're beginning to doubt his purposes. He really means what he says. Maybe a second thing that they doubt is his plan. Look at, look at that phrase again. Maybe they're saying, Jesus, where are we to get enough bread in such a, a desolate place? As if they're acknowledging, you know, we can't do this, Jesus. We couldn't do it before. We can't do it now. It's got to be you. And maybe, if we're giving these guys the benefit of the doubt, they're helplessly looking to Jesus to intervene. Because to be fair, this is the lesson. One of the lessons of feeding the 5,000 is that Jesus uses fallible men in his miraculous ministry to feed other people that they're brought in even though they're not great even though they have questions even though they're weak he involves the disciples i wonder if they're beginning to think is he going to ask us to do this again we have to trust him again to work miraculously like i know you did the first time can't we just bring the bread truck next time we go out right i've got a plan for how this would be a lot easier if we just planned ahead jesus instead what do we learn we learn that jesus calls us always to depend on him. I mean, do you ever think, okay, I'm just going to get this lesson down and then I'm going to get around the bend and it's all going to be easier, right? I think I've learned all the lessons that I want to learn as a pastor. So now it's just going to get easy for the next 30 years, right? I don't think so. But as a parent, I'll have another kid. I'll get this kid right, right? We don't reach a level where all of a sudden we have everything we need and we don't depend on God anymore. No, the Christian life is always dependence upon God. And y'all, that can be exhausting, can't it? I just want my own plan. I just want to have enough money in the bank. I can figure this out and not have to keep depending upon you. But the disciples are taught, I believe, to keep depending upon God. And some of you are don't want to hear that. And you're done with it. And you, you don't want to have to keep waiting on God to provide for you the things that you wish you could provide for yourself. And I believe Jesus is saying to us this morning, keep trusting him. The disciples doubted his plan. A third and final doubt, and I think this is the closest one, is that they doubt his power. And that's just this. They don't believe. They've seen it done. They just don't believe he can, do, he can do it again. As one commentator says, we must never lose sight of a human being's vast capacity for unbelief. <laughs> you get that? We're really capable of not believing the obvious things in front of our eyes. Or as John Calvin says, we look at the disciples and we wonder if a similar dullness creeps over us. Yeah, sure, we've seen God have that power. But is he going to do it again? I wonder if that's you right now. You're not thinking about feeding 
4,000 people, but you say and confess with your lips that God has the power to do incredible things, but do you really believe it? Do you really believe that he has the power to open hard hearts to believe upon Jesus and be saved? Do you really believe that he has the power to change people in radical ways by taking their heart of of, of stone and giving them a heart of flesh? Do you really believe God can bring restoration to the most broken relationships? Do you give it lip service or do you actually believe it and trust God? I think this question reveals that these guys like us are struggling to trust God. And yet he does the miracle anyway. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) It's the same miracle, by the way, I'm not going to go through all these verses. It's the same thing. Same thing he did in chapter five. I mean, uh, in chapter 14, 5,000, he sits, he takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he gives it out. He's the host of the feast. The disciples, they take from Jesus, they give it out, they collect the leftovers. He mediates these promises through jars of clay, through disciples that might doubt his purpose, that might doubt his plan, that might doubt his power. That invitation takes the final step, our final point. The Gentiles, what happened to them? They ate and they're satisfied. Our final heading to the hope of the world. From the heart of Christ, through the hands of the disciples, to the hope of the world. Here is the sermon in a nutshell. Why does Jesus repeat the miracle here? Quote, to affirm that Gentiles as well as Jews will enjoy the messianic banquet. Think about this. You know, you've heard me preach long enough. I hope that I don't usually make a big deal about numbers in the Bible. I know some people do. And every number is a symbol to be sort of interpreted and and pulled apart. That being said, I do think there's two significant numbers here. I think when they fed the 5,000, they collected the baskets. There were 12 baskets representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And that the full people of God amongst the Jews will come in. Now it's not 12 baskets, now it's seven. Seven is a number of completeness. It is a Hebrew number of fullness. And I believe it represents the fullness of the Gentiles who will come in as well. It's a promise of God to his own covenant people and that extends out to the very ends of the earth. This is a banquet that's spread for every single one of you. The mercy of Christ is as deep as as a well, quote, and no one has ever found the bottom. This feast is for the nations. This feast is spread that you might come in, that you might come to the table of Christ in repentance and faith, that the hope of the Jewish people is the hope of the Gentiles, is the hope to the very ends of the earth. And whatever is holding you back, whatever doubts, whatever fears, whatever misgivings, Jesus is calling you this very day to come to this table, to come to his feast. It is spread for everyone to come in. If I could steal a quote and give it to Matthew as he retells this story, Matthew is just a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Isn't that who we are in Christ? We are beggars. We just want crumbs and we get a whole feast. (laughs) And we're beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. You know there are no crumbs 
at the table of Jesus, not even for the least of us. The marriage supper of the Lamb is open to all who believe. So come now in faith and feast at his table. Let's pray. Our Lord, you know the doubts that plague us. You know that we can read of your miracles through and through. We can read your gospel nonstop, and yet we see the problems that confront us. Uh, And Lord, we don't believe. We struggle to believe. We doubt your purpose. We doubt your plan. We doubt your power. And I pray this morning you would grant us the gift of faith to believe upon you, to know that you are the hope of the world, and you are the hope for each one of us. Grant us that gift of faith to lay hold of Christ and eat at his table. In Jesus' name we pray.